listening to a podcast of Elam Lutheran Church in Osakis, Minnesota. Our passion is to be an oasis of life-giving water where lost and wandering souls can find eternal refreshment. For more information and to find out more about our ministries, please visit osakiselamchurch.com. Or if you're in the area, come visit us in person. Good morning again. Our text for today comes from the Gospel of John. We are going to be in chapter 20, verses 24 through 29. So I'll ask you to rise this morning for the reading of God's Word. John chapter 20, verses 24 through 29. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them, this is the disciples, he was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word to us this morning. I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. You may be seated. Today in our Broken Heroes series, which we've been going through for for quite a while and we're going to continue until the end of summer, We're looking at the Apostle Thomas and his struggle with doubt. Thomas was one of the the lesser-known disciples. There's only a few instances where his name is mentioned, and he actually, like, speaks and and says something. And the biblical authors paint a, a pretty mixed picture of Thomas. So in John 14, 5, he is confused and perplexed. In John eleven sixteen, he makes this really brazen statement, which we're not totally sure uh, if it comes from a place of devotion and courage or unbelief and pessimism. And knowing the human condition, it was likely a mixture, both of those things. In Greek, Thomas was called Didymus, which means twin. So it may have been the case that he actually was like a physical twin, right? He, he had maybe an identical twin, but... The word Thomas, Didymus, also means uh, divided. It means duplex or split. And it fits Thomas well because he's a divided character. He's got doubt and belief wrestling it out inside of him. And while he was handpicked by Jesus to be one of Jesus' 12 closest disciples, right? He'd, he'd followed along with Jesus for years He'd witnessed miracle after miracle. He'd seen Jesus raise people from the dead. He'd seen him turn water into wine and exercise demons. But even after all of that, Thomas wrestled mightily with doubt. 
If Thomas had a, had a t-shirt, it would have said, I'll believe it when I see it, in big, bold letters. In other words, Thomas was an empiricist at heart, and so are we. Empiricism was a philosophical movement that emerged during the 17th century around the time of the scientific revolution. And it's associated with people like John Locke, Thomas Hobbes, and uh, David Hume. But we still feel its effects very practically today. Empiricists say that the only pathway to knowledge is through sensory experience. So if I can see it, if I can taste it, if I can smell it, if I can hear it, if I can touch it, then it's real. Uh, but if I can't, then it's, it's definitely not. That's what a, a pure empiricist would say. Immanuel Kant, the famous philosopher, he, he put it this way. He said, all our knowledge begins with the senses, proceeds then to the understanding, and ends with reason. There is nothing higher than reason. Human reason. If you're an empiricist, you won't believe anything unless it's been scientifically verified. And this is Thomas, right? Unless I, unless I, I see him with my eyes, unless I, I place my hand in the wounds, I'm not going to believe. Thomas had his doubts, didn't he? And if we're honest, so do we. James 1, 6-7 describes doubt like this. He says, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. When we doubt, we're like the waves of the sea, tossed back and forth, unmoored and, and, and unanchored, just drifting subject to whatever forces and whatever direction the wind decides to blow on that day. If you've ever been on a, a boat out in the middle of a, a lake or an ocean in choppy waters, you know that this is not a pleasant feeling. Humans, even Christians, as we see in our text today, can be prone to doubt. Now, before we continue, I want to make an important distinction. There is a difference between Doubt and unbelief. The difference between doubt and unbelief. So in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul uses the word unbelievers specifically and only to describe those outside of the Christian faith, outside of the Christian community. Unbelief is like a hardness of heart characterized by an obstinate refusal to trust in Jesus. Doubt, though, at least as I'm understanding and defining doubt today is characterized by skepticism. You're asking lots of questions, right? But, but those questions are still directed toward God. So even while you're kind of in interrogating God, and we see this all over the Scriptures with Job and with the psalmist and with so many others and with, with Jesus Himself asking questions, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You can still seek God in the midst of your doubts. So it's, it's not sinful to ask questions. Point in case, case in point. Ah, one of those two. Case in point. When your kid won't stop asking why, right? Your little toddler, not speaking from experience here or anything, of course. 
Well, your little toddler, they, they, they ask you, you give them some explanation that in your mind is completely satisfactory. And then they ask, well, why? Daddy, why? And you give another explanation. Well, why? 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 What's your response as a parent when your kid asks you these why questions? You don't berate them and tell them to repent of their doubt, do you? At least I hope you don't. We can have a conversation afterwards if that's the case. But, um, right, you hear them and you lovingly respond to them. And you see, that's how God treats us. So it's not as if we're putting our faith in jeopardy whenever we ask hard questions. Doubt is not the same as hard-hearted unbelief. Does, does that make sense, what I'm talking about here? Am I delineating this distinction? Yeah? So back to doubting Thomas. How, how does Jesus respond to him? That's what I want to double-click on today. Jesus' response to doubting Thomas, his response to doubters. Because I think, as we read through this, you might find yourself surprised, as I found myself surprised, and it convicted me of the way that I respond to skeptics. First off, Jesus meets Thomas on his home turf. I think this is important. He, he meets Thomas where he is. He doesn't demand that Thomas first overcome his doubt, get right with the Lord, believe harder, have a little more faith, figure out all the answers, Thomas, come back tomorrow, then we can have this conversation. Now, he doesn't do that. Instead, he meets him where he's at, smack in the midst of his skepticism. See, Th Thomas's doubt didn't cause Jesus to turn away from him, but to move toward him. I think that matters a lot. See, we could put it this way, and this is kind of my point. For Jesus, doubt isn't a barrier to relationship, but an invitation for further connection. As I was considering that, I thought, man, is that my posture towards skeptics too? So Jesus takes the initiative. He moves toward Thomas. And wh what does he say? What's the first thing out of Jesus' mouth? Peace. Peace. Uh, one of his close disciples is coming up to him and expressing doubt, and Jesus tells him, peace. In other words, all is well. Now, I don't know about you, but if one of my close friends came up to me and said, hey, hey, pastor, you know, uh, just an FYI, uh, I'm not sure I believe in God anymore. My reaction to that I can imagine, my first reaction would not be peace. My reaction would probably be something like frustration and anger. But interestingly enough, Jesus doesn't do that. Listen to what New Testament scholar Lenski says about Jesus' encounter with Thomas. Jesus has not come to upbraid him, which is just an old-fashioned word meaning like rebuke, Jesus has not come to upbraid him, but to breathe forgiveness for this disciple's sin. The divine love of Jesus reaches out to gather Thomas, too, into the peace of the safety and the assurance which the disciples already had. Jesus offers peace to doubters. 
And what does he do next? Well, he says to Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands. And put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Jesus didn't ignore Thomas's questions, did he? He didn't gloss over them. He didn't say, well, you know, this is all supposed to be just blind faith, so stop asking questions and just believe. You know? You shouldn't want more evidence, Thomas. You should just have more faith. We don't hear that. Instead, he responds specifically and individually to each of Thomas's requests and gave him the exact evidence that Thomas demanded. And Thomas' response to this, when Jesus answers his questions, Thomas, his response is immediate. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God, which is another way of, of confessing your faith. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen me and yet have believed. And this last statement is less of a harsh rebuke and more of an admonition. And he's saying, you know, the, the witness of the other disciples should have been enough for you, Thomas, instead of you demanding and requesting more than that. But, but here's the, the real headline in this encounter. Thomas came to faith. He came to trust, or rather retrust, in Jesus. He went from, I'll believe it when I see it, to I have seen it, and now I believe it. Man, this is how God brings people to faith. This is how He makes believers. That He takes someone like Thomas, stuck in their unbelief, and through his word, right, through his word, creates faith in his heart. As Paul says in Romans 10, 17, faith comes from what? Hearing. And hearing through the word of Christ. Faith comes from hearing. Jesus speaks, faith is created, and Thomas responds, and the world has never been the same since. Did you know that, that Thomas is actually considered the patron saint of India? It's true. There's actually very good evidence that he traveled there pretty early on as a missionary. He planted churches, spread the gospel, and eventually died as a martyr near Chennai. If you travel to certain parts of India, you'll still see to this day churches named after him. So God moved Thomas from skeptic to believer to missionary. Having experienced God's forgiveness, he couldn't help but share it with others. See, God's mission to Thomas caused Thomas to become a missionary as well. So if there's one lesson for us here as a church this morning, I would suggest that it's this. How we treat skeptics matters. How we treat skeptics matters. It matters a lot. Are you or am I the kind of person someone can come to with their doubts? Or do they think I'm just going to turn them away and judge them? In other words, you kind of put it this way, is there room for questions here? 
Is there room for questions? We live in a world where skepticism toward Christianity is the norm. More and more Christians are met with distrust. And uh, your neighbor, the person who lives literally across the road from you, might never have heard the gospel before. Do you know that? Missiologists now consider America, what is it, like the fourth largest mission field in the world. And people from churches from Africa are sending missionaries to the United States now. You don't have to get on a boat to travel overseas to find skeptical people. You just got to walk out to your mailbox. The mission field has moved. It's moved closer to us. Even rural areas like Osakis are changing. I don't have to tell you that, especially those of you who have been here like a really long time. You've seen this. I haven't. I've only been here a couple years. But for those who have been a part of, of the land and, and farmed here for a really long time, it's, it's, a, it's got to be abundantly clear. I know it is. I've had conversations with many of you who have told me this. The lines at Tip Top are shorter than they used to be. I think that's a good thing. That means I get my ice cream faster. I only live a few blocks from there. But it indicates something, doesn't it? More people are moving from out of town, especially like post-COVID, to come into these little rural communities so they can telecommute from work, and they're looking, telecommute for work, and they're looking for kind of this good old-fashioned country living, like Mayberry-type stuff, right? And Osakis, places like Osakis can offer that at a, a pretty reasonable living rate. Even the ethnic makeup of Osakis has changed in recent years. And here's the challenge for us. This isn't anything new. You know this. The challenge for us, here's what we have to figure out. What is our response going to be to these changes? What is our response going to be? Will we lament them? Which is okay and normal and good for a time. But if you never move out of lament, if you never move beyond the sadness and grief over the loss of the past, which again is a natural and okay thing, but if we don't move beyond it, that lament will turn to disdain. And you can't disdain someone and love them at the same time. So what God is inviting us to do, and not just us, but capital C, church, church everywhere, what he's inviting us to do instead is to take a posture of joyful expectation toward the adventure he's leading us on and the new ministry opportunities that he is placing in our laps. We don't have to search them out anymore. They are being placed in our laps. There are needs everywhere, and we have an incredible opportunity as a church to love our neighbors to get to know them with all of their foibles and and imperfections because that's us as well, right? All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and all are justified freely by His grace. So what can we do to help our skeptical, doubting neighbors experience the love of Jesus? Here's my challenge for you this week. I don't do challenges a lot, but... I encourage you to take this one up. Here it is. Pick up the 
pick out one person in your life that you would consider a doubter or a skeptic, someone that you cross paths with regularly, that you already have a pre-existing relationship with. This might be kind of hard because we don't always think in these terms, but it gets easier the more and more you do it. Pick out that one person and make it your goal this week to say, what is one way, one baby step that I can take to love this person toward the kingdom of God this week? What is one baby step I can take to love this skeptic, this doubter, toward the kingdom of God this week? Can you invite them over for a meal? Can you take a genuine interest in their family? It's amazing how few people actually do this. (laughs) Can you listen, honestly listen, when you ask them how they're doing? How can we respond to skeptics and doubters in our own lives? I'll wrap up today with just this final thought. The truth is that, just like Thomas, our doubting hearts demand proof. We like to put God on trial, don't we? We demand answers, and we hold on to our doubts with a death grip until someone pries them from our cold, dead fingers. But Jesus won't allow our doubts to separate us from Him. Because in the final analysis, what we don't need is more answers. We don't need more proof. We don't need more evidence. We need more of our Savior. I love how Professor Ken Sundet Jones summarizes this passage, and I'm going to let him have the last word today. He's talking a little tongue-in-cheek here, but stick with it because it, it's good. And it summarizes everything we've been talking about. Proof schmoof, Jesus says. I've already taken care of that. What's been proven is that you and every other sinner will cling to your unbelief and doubt until it kills me. Right? It was our doubts that nailed him to the cross. But, he says, but I'm risen above all your doubts and despair. I've bundled them up and tucked them into the holes in my flesh. Poke around in there all you like. You'll find your past with all its disasters, your present inability to conjure up something out of your life. It's all death. But now, look at the pulsing veins next to these holes and see your future. Man. Jesus died and rose again to save us from our own doubting heart. So look to Him and see your future. Look to Him and His resurrection and you will discover that in the shadow of the empty tomb, all of our gravest doubts will fly away. Amen. Join us next week as we continue our Broken Heroes of the Faith series by talking about Naomi's bitterness. Let's pray. Hey friends, Pastor Luke here. Thanks so much for tuning in. I trust that you've been blessed by our message from God's Word today. Hey, we'd love to connect with you more. If you have comments or questions, you can email me directly at pastorchellog at gmail.com. That's pastor K-J-O-L-H-A-U-G at gmail.com. 
As we wrap up our time together today, please receive this benediction. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face toward you and give you his peace. Amen.